Section 7 of Chateau and Country Life in France. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Melinda Fogel. Chateau and Country Life in France by Mary King Waddington. Chapter 4 Winter at the Chateau. Part 1. We had a very cold winter one year, a great deal of snow, which froze as it fell and lay a long time on the hard ground. We woke up one morning in a perfectly still white world. It had snowed heavily during the night, and the house was surrounded by a glistening white carpet which stretched away to the saponette at the top of the lawn without a speck or flaw. There was no trace of path or road or little low shrubs, and even the branches of the big lime trees were heavy with snow. It was a bright, beautiful day, blue sky and a not-too-pale winter sun. Not a vehicle of any kind had ventured out. In the middle of the road were footprints, deep in the snow where evidently the keepers and some workmen had passed. Nothing and no one had arrived from outside, neither postman, butcher, nor baker. The chef was in a wild state, but I assured him we could get on with eggs and game, of which there was always a provision for one day, at any rate. About eleven, Pauline and I started out. We thought we would go as far as the lodge and see what was going on on the high road. We put on thick boots, gaiters, and very short skirts, and had imagined we could walk in the footsteps of the keepers. But, of course, we couldn't take their long stride, and we floundered about in the snow. In some places where it had drifted, we went in over our knees. There was nothing visible on the road, not a creature absolute stillness, a line of footprints in the middle where some laborers had passed, and the long stretch of white fields, broken by lines of black poplars running straight away to the forest. While we were standing at the gate talking to old Antoine, who was all muffled up with a woolen comforter tied over his cap and socks over his shoes, we saw a small moving object in the distance. As it came nearer, we made out it was the postman, also so muffled up as to be hardly recognizable. He, too, had woolen socks over his shoes, and said the going was something awful. The Montagnier de Merol, a sheet of ice. He had fallen twice, in spite of his socks and pointed stick. He said neither butcher nor baker would come, that no horse could get up the hill. We sent him into the kitchen to thaw, and have his breakfast. That was also one of the traditions of the chateau. The postman always breakfasted. On Sundays, when there was no second delivery, he brought his little girl and an accordion and remained all the afternoon. He often got a lift back to La Ferte when the carriage was going into the station, or the chef to market in the donkey cart. Now, Many of the postmen have bicycles. We had a curious feeling of being cut off from the outside world, 
The children, Francis and Alice, were having a fine time in the stable yard, where the men had made them two snow figures, man and woman, giants, and they were pelting them with snowballs and tumbling headlong into the heaps of snow on each side of the gate, where a passage had been cleared for the horses. We thought it would be a good opportunity to do a little coasting and inaugurate a sled we had had made with great difficulty the year before. It was rather a long operation. The wheelwright at Marol had never seen anything of the kind, had no idea what we wanted. Fortunately, Francis had a little sled which one of his cousins had sent him from America, and with that as a model and many explanations, the wheelwright and the blacksmith produced really a very credible sled. Quite large, a seat for two in front, and one behind for the person who steered. Only, when the sled was finished, the snow had disappeared. It rarely lasts long in France. We had the sled brought out. The runners needed a little repairing, and the next day made our first attempt. There was not much danger of meeting anything, a sort of passage had been cleared and gravel sprinkled in the middle of the road, but very few vehicles had passed, and the snow was as hard as ice. All the establishment assisted at the first trial, and the stable boy accompanied us with the donkey who was to pull the sled up the hill. We had some little difficulty in starting, Paulina and I in front, Francis behind, but as soon as we got fairly on the slope, the thing flew. Pauline was frightened to death, screaming, and wanted to get off. But I held her tight, and we landed in the ditch near the foot of the hill. Halfway down, the hill is steep but straight. One sees a great distance. Francis saw the diligence arriving, and he was not quite sure of his steering gear. He thought it was better to take no risks, and steered us straight into the ditch as hard as we could go. The sled upset, we all rolled off into the deep soft snow, lost our hats, and emerged quite white from head to foot. The diligence had stopped at the foot of the hill. There were only two men in it besides the driver, the old Père Jacques, who was dumbfounded when he recognized Madame Waddington. It seems they couldn't think what had happened. As they got to the foot of the hill, they saw a good many people at the gate of the chateau. Then suddenly, something detached itself from the group and rushed wildly down the hill. They thought it was an accident, some part of a carriage broken, and before they had time to collect their senses, the whole thing collapsed in the ditch. The poor old man was quite disturbed. He couldn't think we were not hurt, and begged us to get into the diligence and not trust ourselves again to such a dangerous vehicle. However, we reassured him, and all walked up the hill together, the donkey pulling the sled, which was tied to him with a very primitive arrangement of ropes, the sled constantly swinging around and hitting him on the legs, which he naturally resented and kicked viciously. We amused ourselves very much as long as the snow lasted, about ten days, coasted often, and made excursions to the neighboring villages with the sled and the donkey. We wanted to skate, but that was not easy to arrange, as the ponds and tubiers near us were very deep, and I was afraid to venture with the children. 
I told Hubert, the coachman, who knew the country well, to see what he could find. He said there was a very good pond in the park of the Chateau of La Ferte, and he was sure the proprietor, an old man who lived there by himself, would be quite pleased to let us come there. The old gentleman was most amiable, baked we would come as often as we liked, merely making one condition, that we should have a man on the bank. The pond was only about a foot deep, with a rope in case of accidents. We went there nearly every afternoon, and made quite a comfortable installation on the bank. A fire, rugs, chairs, and a very good little gootzer, the grocer's daughter bringing us hot wine and biscuits from the town. It was a perfect sight for La Ferte. The whole town came to look at us, and the carters stopped their teams on the road to look on. One day particularly, when one of our cousins, Maurice de Bunsen, was staying with us. He skated beautifully, doing all sorts of figures, and his double eights and initials astounded the simple country folk. For some time after, they spoke of Langlais, who did such wonderful things on the ice. They were bad days for the poor. We used to meet all the children coming back from school when we went home. The poor little things toiled up the steep, slippery hill, with often a cold wind that must have gone through the thin, worn-out jackets and shawls they had for all covering, carrying their little satchels and remnants of dinner. Those that came from a distance always brought their dinner with them, generally a good hunk of bread and a piece of chocolate. The poorer ones bread alone, very often only a stale hard crust that couldn't have been very nourishing. They were a very poor lot at our little village, St. Quentin, and we did all we could in the way of warm stockings and garments, but the pale pinched faces rather haunted me, and Henrietta and I thought we would try and arrange with the schoolmistress, who was wife of one of the keepers to give them a hot plate of soup every day during the winter months. W., who knew his people well, rather discouraged us, said they all had a certain sort of pride, notwithstanding their poverty, and might perhaps be offended at being treated like tramps or beggars. But we could try if we liked. We got a big kettle at La Ferte, and the good mare Cecile of the Azel lent us the tin bowls, also telling us we wouldn't be able to carry out our plan. She had tried at the Azel, but it didn't go. The children didn't care about the soup, like the bread and chocolate better. It was really a curious experience. I am still astonished when I think of it. The soup was made at the headkeeper's cottage, standing on the edge of the woods. We went over the first day, about eleven o'clock, a cold, clear day, a biting wind blowing down the valley. The children were all assembled, waiting impatiently for us to come. The soup was smoking in a big pot hung high over the fire. We, of course, tasted it, borrowing two bowls from the children and asking Madame LeBay to cut us two pieces of bread, the children all giggling and rather shy. The soup was very good and we were quite pleased to think that the poor little thing should have something warm in their stomachs. 
the first depressing mark was made by our own coachman on the way home his little daughter was living at the keepers i said to him i did not see celine with the other children oh no madame she wasn't there we pay for the food at la Bay's. she doesn't need charity the next day equally cold about half the children came there were only twenty-seven in the school the third five or six rather shamefaced the fourth not one and at the end of the week the keeper's wife begged us to stop the distribution all the parents were hurt at the idea of their children receiving public charity from madame waddington she had thought some of the very old people of the village might like what was left but no one came except some tramps and rough-looking men who had heard there was food to be had and they had made her very nervous prowling around the house when she was alone her husband away all day in the woods w was amused not at all surprised he said he was quite sure we shouldn't succeed but it was just as well to make our own experience we took our bowls back sadly to the azel where the good sister shook her head saying madame verhacombe c'est difficile de faire du bien dans ce pays-ci on ne pense qu'à s'amuser and yet we saw the miserable little crust of hard bread and some of the boys in linen jackets over their skin no shirt and looking as if they never had a square meal in their lives i had one other curious experience and after that i gave up trying anything that was a novelty or that they hadn't seen all their lives the french peasant is really conservative and if left to himself with no cheap political papers or socialist orders haranguing in the cafes on the eternal topic of the rich and the poor he would be quite content to go on leading the life he and his fathers have always led would never want to destroy or change anything I was staying one year with Lady Derby at Knowsley in Christmas week, and I was present one afternoon when she was making her annual distribution of clothes to the village children. I was much pleased with some ulsters and some red cloaks she had for the girls. They were so pleased, too, broad smiles on their faces when they were called up and the cloaks put on their shoulders. They looked so warm and comfortable when the little band trudged home across the snow. I had instantly visions of my schoolchildren, attired in these cloaks, climbing our steep hills in the dark winter days. I had a long consultation with Lady Margaret Cecile, Lady Derby's daughter, a perfect saint who spent all her life helping other people, and she gave me the catalogue of Price-Jones, a well-known Welsh shop whose speciality was all sorts of clothes for country people, schools, workmen's families, etc. I ordered a large collection of red cloaks, ulsters, and flannel shirts at a very reasonable price, and they promised to send them in the late summer so that we should find them when we went back to France. We found two large cases when we got home, and were quite pleased at all the nice warm cloaks we had in store for the winter. As soon as the first real cold days began, about the end of November, the women used to appear at the chateau asking for warm clothes for the children. 
The first one to come was the wife of the Gerda de Borny, a slight, pale woman, the mother of nine small children. Several of them were members of the school at St. Quentin, who had declined our soup, and I had rather their little pinched bloodless faces in my mind when I first thought about it. She had three with her, a baby in her arms, a boy and a girl of six and seven, both bare-legged, the boy in an old worn-out jersey pulled over his chest, the girl in a ragged blue and white apron, a knitted shawl over her head and shoulders. The baby had a cloak. I don't believe there was much on underneath, and the mother was literally a bundle of rags, her skirt so patched one could hardly make out the original color, and a wonderful cloak all frayed at the ends, and with holes in every direction. However, they were all clean. The baby and the boy were soon provided for. The boy was much pleased with his flannel shirt. We then produced the red cloak for the girl. The woman's face fell. Oh no, madam, I couldn't take that. My little girl couldn't wear it. I astounded, but you don't see what it is. A good thick cloak that will cover her all up and keep her warm. Oh no, madam, she couldn't wear that. All the people on the road would laugh at her. Cela ne supporte pas dans notre pays. That is not worn in our country. I explained that I had several, and that she would see all the other little girls with the same cloaks, but I got only the same answer, adding that madame would see. No child would wear such a cloak. I was much disgusted, thought the woman was capricious. But she was perfectly right. Not a single mother, and heaven knows they were poor enough, would take a red cloak. And they all had to be transformed into red flannel petticoats. Every woman made me the same answer. Everyone on the road would laugh at them. I was not much luckier with the Ulsters. What I had ordered for big girls of nine and ten would just go on girls of six and seven. Either French children are much stouter than English, or they wear thicker things underneath. Here again, there was work to do. All the sleeves were much too long. My maids had to alter and shorten them, which they did with rather a bad grace. A most interesting operation that very cold year was taking ice out of the big pond at the foot of the hill. The ice was several inches thick, and beautifully clear in the middle of the pond. Toward the edges the reeds and long grass had all got frozen into it, and it was rather difficult to get the big blocks out. We had one of the farm carts with a pair of strong horses, and three or four men with axes and a long pointed stick. It was so solid that we all stood on the pond while the men were cutting their first square hole in the middle. It was funny to see the fish swimming about under the ice. The whole village, of course, looked on, and the children were much excited and wanted to come and slide on the ice, but I got nervous as the hole got bigger and the ice at the edges thinner, so we all adjourned to the road and watched operations from there. There were plenty of fish in the pond, and once a year it was thoroughly drained and cleaned, the water drawn off, and the bottom of the pond which got choked up with mud and weeds, cleared out. 
They made a fine haul of fish on those occasions, from the small pools that were left on each side while the cleaning was going on. Our ice house was a godsend to all the countryside. Whenever anyone was ill and ice was wanted, they always came to the chateau. Our good old doctor was not at all in the movement as regarded fresh air and cold water, but ice he often wanted. He was a rough, kindly old man, quite the type of the country practitioner, the type that is also disappearing, like everything else. Everybody knew his cabriolet, with a box at the back where he kept his medicine chest and instruments, with a strong brown horse that trotted all day and all night up and down the steep hills in all weathers. A very small boy was always with him to hold the horse while he made his visits. Our doctor was very kind to the poor, and he never refused to go out at night. It was funny to see him arrive on a cold day, enveloped in so many cloaks and woolen comforters that it took him some time to get out of his wraps. He had a gruff voice and heavy black overhanging eyebrows, which frightened people at first, but they soon found out what a kind heart there was beneath such a rough exterior, and the children loved him. He had always a box of licorice lozenges in his waistcoat pocket, which he distributed freely to the small ones. The country doctors about us now are a very different type, much younger men, many foreigners. There are two Russians and a Greek in some of the small villages near us. I believe they are very good. I met the Greek one day at the keeper's cottage. He was looking after the keeper's wife, who was very ill. It seemed funny to see a Greek with one of those long Greek names ending in Popolo in a small little French village, almost lost in the woods. But he made a very good impression on me, was very quiet, didn't give too much medicine, apothecary's bills are always such a terror to the poor, and spoke kindly to the woman. He comes still in a cabriolet, but his Russian colleague has an automobile. Indeed, so have now many of the young French doctors. I think there is a little rivalry between the Frenchmen and the foreigners, but the latter certainly make their way. What is very serious now is the open warfare between the curé and the schoolmaster. When I first married, the schoolmasters and mistresses took their children to church, always sat with them and kept them in order. The schoolmistress sometimes played the organ. Now, they not only don't go to church themselves, but they try to prevent the children from going. The result is that half the children don't go, either to the church or to the catechism. I had a really annoying instance of this state of things one year, when we wanted to make a Christmas tree and distribution of warm clothes at Montagnier, a lonely little village not far from us. We talked it over with the curé and the schoolmaster. They gave us the names and ages of all the children, and were both much pleased to have a fete in their quiet little corner. I didn't suggest a service in the church, as I thought that might perhaps be a difficulty for the schoolmaster. Two days before the fete, I had a visit from the curé of Montagnier, who looked embarrassed and awkward, had evidently something on his mind and finally blurted out that he was very sorry he couldn't be present at the Christmas tree, as he was obliged to go to Rance that day. I, 
much surprised and decidedly put out. You are going to rance the one day in the year when we come and make a fete in your village? It is most extraordinary, and surprises me extremely. The date has been fixed for weeks, and I hold very much to your being there. He still persisted, looking very miserable and uncomfortable, and finally said he was going away on purpose so as not to be at the schoolhouse. He liked the schoolmaster very much, got on with him perfectly. He was intelligent and taught the children very well. But all schoolmasters who had anything to do with the church or the curé were malnotes. The mayor of Montagnier was a violent radical, and surely if he heard that the curé was present at our fete in the schoolhouse, the schoolmaster would be dismissed the next day. The man was over thirty, with wife and children. It would be difficult for him to find any other employment, and he himself would regret him, as his successor might be much worse and fill the children's heads with impossible ideas. I was really very much vexed, and I told him I would talk it over with my son and see what we could do. The poor little curé was much disappointed, but begged me not to insist upon his presence. A little later the schoolmaster arrived, also very much embarrassed, saying practically the same thing, that he liked the curé very much. He never talked politics, nor interfered in any way with his parishioners. Whenever anyone was ill or in trouble, he was always the first person to come forward and nurse and help, but he saw him very little. If I held to the curé being present at the Christmas tree, of course he could say nothing, but he would certainly be dismissed the next day. He was married, had nothing but his salary. It would be a terrible blow to him. I was very much perplexed, particularly as the time was short, and I couldn't get a hold of the mayor. So we called a family council. Henrietta and Francis were both at home, and decided that we must let our fete take place without the curé. The schoolmaster was very grateful and said he would take my letter to the post office. I had to write to the curé to tell him what we had decided, and that he might go to Rance. End of Section 7 Recording by Melinda Fogel